I want to talk with you tonight about a subject that I call belated lessons. You know, it, it is a fact that there are many lessons that we learn as we go through life. And isn't it a shame that so many times we do not learn those lessons until it is too late to do us any good. We learn them too late. They come too late. And I think there's an Old Testament example that is found uh, in the first Kings uh, chapter 12, 13 and 14. And these, uh, I think, will give us uh, an example from which to spring our lesson, if, if we might, this evening. In Romans 15 and verse 4, the apostle said, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so tonight, I want to use these old, this Old Testament example uh, to, uh, uh, to illustrate and to bring us up to date, help us see why it is important to learn our lessons at the right time. You know, uh, if you study the history of, of, of Israel, it's really very, very interesting. When David became king because Saul faltered and God took the kingdom away from him, David was a very young man. David was quite a king and he ruled for 40 years. And then his son Solomon became king and he ruled for 40 years and apparently ruled quite well. Though Solomon made many, many mistakes and of course had perhaps more wives than anyone that you will ever read about in the history of the world. But then it was time when Solomon was done, it was time for his son Rehoboam to become king. Now God had prophesied sometime earlier, back at, during David's reign, when David faltered and sinned, that he was going to take the kingdom away from David. But he said, I'll not, or, or I, t I take that back from Solomon, but he said, I'll not do it uh, in, uh, in David's time, I'll do it in your son's time. Well, this was kind of what happened, and it was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. And it's amazing how that, you know, God sees the end from the beginning, and when he sees something like that, he just has a way of bringing it to come to pass. It just happens. Well, it came for the day that Rehoboam was to become king. They went to a place called Shechem, for all Israel, the Bible says, had come there to make him king. And on that day, a momentous event happened because the people of uh, Israel came. Now, there was a fellow by the name of Jeroboam who came with them. Jeroboam had fled and was kind of living in exile. But on the day that uh, they were to make Rehoboam king, Jeroboam came with the rest of Israel. And so they, 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 they posed a question uh, to Rehoboam and they said, if you will make our, our burdens lighter, than they were under your father Solomon, we'll serve you. Well, he said, give me three days to think about it. Not a very smart move on Rehoboam's part. He should have said, I'll tell you what, I'll do my best to work with you. And he could have had the people, he could have had their, uh, you know, their, uh, their loyalty right there. But instead, he decided to uh, seek counsel. And he talked to the old men that had served under his father and they advised him to do that very thing, to, to be easy on them. But that somehow didn't suit Rehoboam. I don't know much about Rehoboam. I suppose he was probably a typical king's son who was kind of feeling his oats or as we would say his Cheerios. And he went and talked to some of his younger friends and they advised him to do the opposite. 
They said, tell them that where your father chastised them with whips, we'll chastise you with scorpions. And my little finger will be thicker than the loins of your father. Which is, if we were to say it in our modern day English, would be to say, you haven't seen anything yet. If you think it was tough under Solomon, just wait till you have an opportunity uh, to live and, and to function under me. Well, this brought about the revolt that God promised would happen at some point when Rehoboam became king. And so all but just one or two tribes revolted and went way up into Dan and Bethel. And there they made Jeroboam king. Now Jeroboam had been, he had quite a, a storied past. He was a, uh, he was a powerful man. He had played quite a role uh, in Israel, but it was not God's will for him to become king. And they made this common man king in spite of the fact that it was not God's will. Well, this, of course, angered God. And uh, so things began to change. It, now, Rehoboam, and let me just say this. If you study the history of the world, you will find that there have been any number of men who, came, who became king or uh, premier or president or whatever you might want to call it in various countries who would establish a religion to support their, their throne, their power. But probably Rehoboam may have been the very first, or I should say Jeroboam, might be the very first one to have done that that we know about. If I'm mistaken, I stand corrected. But Jeroboam realized that unless he did some counterfeiting, that it wouldn't be long that Israel would return to Jerusalem and take up the old ways and he would be out on his ear. He didn't want that. He enjoyed being king. And so he began to, uh, he made a couple of calves and he put one in the city of Dan and another one in Bethel. And he said, listen, it's too far for you to go back to Jerusalem to worship. He said, behold the, behold the gods that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And you know, those people were so gullible. You remember I told you, I think it was Wednesday night, that uh, God's people have, have been called sheep for so many years. And right there, they proved it again. They followed this ridiculous move on Jeroboam's part. They began to worship those, those golden calves. And of course, it was a sin in God's sight. Well, one day, they were getting ready to worship in the city of Dan. And Jeroboam was standing by one of the altars. And uh, oh, it was a big to-do. And so there was, a, there was a prophet that just appeared seemingly out of nowhere. It seemed that nobody expected him to come, but he just walked right up in the middle of all of this great big to-do, stopped right over there by the altar, and just began to prophesy. I don't suppose anybody knew him, but he began to prophesy. And he said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priest of high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt on thee. The Bible says he gave a sign the same day, saying that the altar would be rent, or that is, destroyed, and that the ashes are, 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 would be poured out. And then he just turned and started off back the way that he came. Well, it, it just kind of, uh, I think Jeroboam just for a minute just kind of stood there thunderstruck. Nobody expected this, and yet he could see that his, his uh, invention was about to go down the drain. So as this young prophet starts out, Jeroboam says, lay hold on him. Stretched out his hand, you know, and says, lay hold on him. 
And you know that arm that he stretched out just stiffened and he could not draw it back to him. It was as stiff as the proverbial poker. Well, when he saw that, he realized how foolish he looked. And so he said to the young prophet, Entreat the Lord thy God that perhaps he may restore my arm to me. And the young prophet did, and God did, and his arm was restored. Oh, now he's the hero. And Jeroboam says, come and go home with me and take a reward and uh, refresh yourself. And the young prophet said, no, I can't do that. If you gave me half of your house, I couldn't go in with you. Because the Lord told me I couldn't eat bread nor drink water in this place. And I'm not even allowed to return home the way I came. And he just turned and started off. Well, he went, I don't know how far, but he went down the road for a way and he stopped under an oak tree. The Bible says probably was tired from the long trip. Now it's strange. There was an old prophet there. And the reason I call this other prophet, a young prophet was to distinguish him from the old prophet that lived up there in Dan. Apparently this old prophet had a conscience about going to this false worship. He wasn't willing to do that. And so he stayed home that day. He wasn't there. But you know, a funny thing happened. He had a couple of boys and they went. Now it's interesting and we fathers need to remember this. We may not go to some worldly places of entertainment. We may not involve ourselves in some worldly practices. But if you've got some sons or daughters, you better know that unless you're awfully careful, they will go. They will go where you wouldn't go. They're, they want to see what's going on. And so there was a couple of boys there th uh, that day who were the sons of this old prophet. And they stood there and looked with awe as this young man left. Well, as Linwood used to say, they didn't let their shirt tail hit their back until they went home and told their father what they had seen. And the old man said, which way did he go? And they told him because they had seen him leave. They knew which way he went. And so he saddled up the old donkey and away he went after this young prophet. Found him sitting under the oak. Nothing wrong with him stopping under the oak tree, but it turns out to have been a kind of a bad mistake on his part. And this prophet comes up, the old prophet comes up to the young one and he said, are you the prophet from Judah? And he said, yeah, that's, that's me. Oh, he said, come and go home with me and refresh yourself. No, and he gave him the same spiel that he gave Jeroboam. He said, now listen. You know, he said, I, I can't return. I, I can't eat or drink here. Can't even go home the same way. And this old prophet said, listen, an angel came to me and told me to come and tell you that you're to come home with me and eat and drink and take a reward. But the Bible plainly says, but he lied unto him. But you know, that got the job done. I don't know, but I would imagine that this young prophet was foot sore, weary, tired, hungry, obviously thirsty. He hadn't had anything to drink in that place because God told him not to do it. And so he decided that he would take this old man up on his offer. And he got up and went home with him. And they sat down at what probably was a wonderful feast. I can just imagine it was. But you know, somewhere during that meal, the old prophet just began to prophesy. Words just came out of his mouth. He couldn't help himself. 
And he told this young prophet, he said, you know, inasmuch as you came here and ate, you disobeyed the commandments of the Lord and you've come here and you've, you've, you've had water in this place. He said, your carcass is not going to reach the sepulcher of your fathers. Now that's an old time way of saying, you're never going to get home, boy. This is as far as you go. And I just imagine, the Bible doesn't say, but I just imagine that this meal ended in doom and gloom. Nobody felt very, uh, uh, probably too happy. Not much laughter, not much storytelling probably took place now. And finally the young man decides to leave and he saddles up and away he goes. And sure enough, somewhere along the way, a lion met him and pulled him off of the animal and killed him. Did not eat him, just killed him. And he didn't eat the, uh, the animal either that uh, he had been riding. And so this young prophet lays out there a corpse and somebody comes along the road and sees this and the lion is just standing there. It's the strangest thing they'd ever seen. Now they probably might not have noticed if a lion had killed somebody or maybe killed uh, a donkey and eaten it. That was pretty common. But to, but to kill this and then do no damage. And so they went into town and they told the story. And of course it got back to the old prophet. And the old prophet said to the boys, saddle me the ass, the donkey. And he went out and picked up that young man brought him back, put him in his own tomb, and he told his boys, when I'm dead, you bury me in the same tomb that I've put this young man in. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to say. That's essentially the story that I'm going to use as an example. But there's a couple of things I want to say. If you're not careful when you read this, you think, God was awfully unfair. He was awfully harsh, and he was awfully se severe. Remember one night in the meeting, I talked about the 11th chapter of Romans in verse 22, where Paul said, behold, therefore the goodness and the severity of God, etc., etc." And God's severity is so incredible, just as his goodness is so incredible, that to think of these two things that were worlds apart brought this exclamatory sentence out from the apostle Paul. Well, now God's severity came to that young prophet that day. Why? Well, because he disobeyed God. You say, yes, but the prophet lied to him. Well, so what? The prophet lied, but that young prophet knew very well that no angel would ever directly countermand an order from, of God himself. He knew better than that. Here was a problem. Here was the problem as I see it. This young prophet wanted to believe the lie. And you know, the Bible tells us that it is possible when we want to believe a lie, God makes it possible for us to do that. In fact, there are many people in the world today who believe a lie and they don't really care what the Bible says because they believe a certain lie and uh, they think they've got it all figured out. I, I mean, I've heard some of the most absurd, some of the most ridiculous explanations uh, from people when I've been trying to talk with them about the Bible that you can imagine. Now, it just directly contradicting what the scripture says. And yet, they could care less. They believe a lie. Well, this young man believed that lie, and this was where he fell into great problems. Well, he learned a lesson too late, this young man. And if he could come back today and do all of this over again, I'm certain that he would do it differently. 
I'm certain that he would not believe that lie and he wouldn't go home with that young prophet or the old prophet and the, and the lion would never have killed him. And the mistake that he made was not that he stopped under the oak. God didn't care how he went home as long as he went by a different route. He didn't care whether he walked or ran or rode an animal or whatever. But he, but he didn't obey what God told him to do. Now, I want to mention a few things now based upon this story and, and hopefully we can understand some things. Let me say first of all that God does not indulge in self-contradiction. Now what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that this man had no evidence of any kind to convince himself that God might give him one set of instructions while giving this old prophet a completely contradictory set. He didn't have any evidence to show that. This was a lie that he wanted to believe. It might be that his natural hunger and thirst influenced his thinking, but he still believed the lie and that caused him to sin. Now here's, here's the dangerous thing about believing a lie. I believe that it is possible, in fact I'm certain that it is possible, that you might believe a lie about certain things about the Word of God and not be lost. Unless the belief of that lie causes you to disobey what God said, or to worship wrong, or something of that nature, well, it's bad that you believe the lie, and it's too bad that you're mistaken. But unless you disobey God and find yourself in His wrath, there's no reason to believe that you're going to be lost. The young man believed the lie that caused him to disobey God. He sinned when he did that. And so God still does not indulge in self-contradiction. He just doesn't do it. I know some seem to believe that he does, but he doesn't. I want to look at some examples quickly here to show uh, how some believe that he does. Have you ever heard anybody say, and I've heard this so many times, have you ever heard anybody say when you're talking about religion, well, preacher, love is the only thing that matters. Love God, love Christ, love your brother. That's all that matters. No matter how you worship, it's okay. Long as you, long as you love, long as you've got love in your heart. But you know, Jesus said in John 14 and 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, that's the way to prove whether or not we love God, whether we love the Lord. If we're keeping his commandments, that is an indication that we love him. But if we're believing a lie and if we're worshiping in a way that is not condoned by the scriptures, if we're accepting things that are totally different and contradictory, do we love him? How can we? We're not keeping his commandments. That proves that there's something wrong with this, uh, with this uh, equation here. And then how many times have you heard somebody say, you know, I don't think the church is important anyway. I remember right now a, a young family that came to church with us in Fremont when I first began the mission work out there. This young woman had three boys, two boys maybe it was, and a daughter. And her husband was a nice fellow. I really liked him, but he would not come to church. He would sometimes come and have lunch with us if we had an all-day service, as we called it. But I don't think I ever saw him come to church. And one day he said to me, you know, I don't worry about these little things like church. He said, uh, I, I believe I can worship just as well out by the lake, or down on the beach, out by the ocean, or up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Why well, I can worship just as well, maybe better there, than I could if I came to church. You ever heard anybody talk like that? That the church is not important? 
Well, listen here to what the Bible says. In Ephesians 5, verses 20, in verse 23, Paul said, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. The body is the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about. And in Ephesians 4 and verse 4, we learn that there is just one body. He is the Savior of that one body. I want to tell you something. The idea of denominationalism all adding up to one body is just simply, well, it's just mistaken. That's about the kindest way that I know to say it. Listen again. In Ephesians 5 verse 25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How much do you love your wife? How much do you love your husband? Are you willing to give your very life for him or her? Well, you probably are. If you love them like I love my wife, you love them that much. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Well, why is it then that God cares nothing about the church if he gave his own son for it? How is it that that could be that the church is unimportant? In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the apostle said, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Obviously, the Bible doesn't agree with the assumption that the church is unimportant. But now we're going to get back to this in a little bit. Then there are others that say, and this is popular, well, there's many churches. And all roads lead to heaven. I've actually seen this on billboards. All roads lead to heaven. No matter what religion you're in, love God, love your, your, your neighbor, and you're going to make it just fine. That's a very popular concept. But you know, the Bible says in Ephesians 4 and verse 4, there is one body, and remember what the body is, that's the church, plainly. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. Just one body, just one church. How is it then that all roads lead to heaven? How is it then that people try to tell us that we can be saved in any church? Can't be done. Jesus said in John 17, verses 20 through 21, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Listen, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Here's the kicker now. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Have you ever thought about this? One of the reasons that Jesus wanted us to all be one religiously is so that the world would believe and know he was sent by the Father. Now consider this. With all of the different denominations in the world today, what do you suppose Satan's idea could have been in bringing them into existence? Exactly. It, dif it diffuses that. It confuses that. If there was still only one church, there would be no question in anybody's mind as to what church you needed to be a part of in order to be saved. Do you realize that denominationalism came about hundreds of years, hundreds of years after the Lord's church was established? There's no validity in it. Jesus didn't die to build those, those, those organizations. He shed his blood for his church. And if there was still only one church 
and you said to your neighbor, come and go to church with me, your neighbor wouldn't say, oh, well, what church are you a member of? Your neighbor would know because there would only be one. And there would be no question that God sent the, Lord, the, the Son into the world. Faith alone will save, they say. Oh, that's really popular today. But you know, James said in James 2.24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Exactly contradicting what the religious world's popular belief is today. And let me say this, I could go on and on, but religious leaders don't always tell the truth. That might be a surprise to some of you, but the, the fact of it is, they often don't tell the truth. And one major fault this prophet had in our story tonight was his, his gullibility. He was gullible, I think, because he wanted to believe that lie. He wanted to go back and enjoy a reward for what he had done. After all, what he did was brave. And to stand up before King Rehoboam, or Jeroboam rather, and, and condemn that altar and that false worship, man, you've got to admire that. He was ready for an attack of Satan on that front. A frontal attack he was ready for. What he didn't understand and what he didn't realize and what we sometimes don't realize is that Satan doesn't always attack from the front. You know, Brother Homer Gay, whom I was raised around, he used to have a, he just had one eye that functioned. He was blind in one eye. And he said, sometimes the devil comes up on your blind side and you don't see him coming until he's got you. Well, that's right. And that may have been what happened to this young man. But the old prophet lied. He was fooled for whatever the reason was. And he disobeyed God and he sinned and it cost him everything. The Bible says in Acts 17 and verse 11. That the Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see if they had been told the truth. How wise of them. I wonder how many of you will go home this evening. And check your Bibles and see if what I've told you is true. I hope you do. That's what you should do. And it ought not to make any difference who the person is who tells you a lie. If it doesn't match the Bible, you need to find out really quick. This old prophet took the word of God and turned it around so that it would say something exactly opposite what God really said. And this is done on a constant basis today. Constant basis today. We have to be careful lest we're fooled and led astray. Now, here's another thing that's interesting. What this old prophet did really was claim to have a new revelation. He, he essentially said, yeah, I know what you were told, but listen, I've got news for you. I got a new revelation. An angel told me that you should come back with me. A new revelation. You know anybody that uh, believes in a new revelation? Well, I do. The Bible says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. All things. I never will forget I was studying with a couple of young men who came to the door one time and they had, they were just young fellas. They were probably 18, 19 years old. But they had a little sign on their coat that said elder so and so. Well we began studying. We studied for about six weeks. Until finally the bishop of that particular organization canceled the studies and uh, told my wife one day on the phone, uh, you, you people are not willing, you're not interested in learning the truth, you're just trying to confuse our boys. Well, those boys were supposedly elders and they were out teaching that particular doctrine. A new revelation? No. 
Peter said many, many years ago that God's divine power hath already given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Here it is, folks. If you want to go to heaven, here's the recipe. It's all right here. Nobody, and nobody's got anything newer than that. Nobody's got anything older than that that's worth anything. It's right there in the book. Just follow it and you can make it to heaven. Again, in uh, 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 Jude, the, Jude verse 3, Jude said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Is there going to be a new revelation? Not on your life. There won't be. It's already over with and done. The, the revelation has been given, written down, and we've got it today. We can read it and see our way clear to go to heaven. The old prophet claimed to have seen an angel, but the Bible says he lied. The Bible says so in so many words. Did you know that there is a religion in the world today who claims that their particular doctrine was given to, uh, uh, given by, I should say, the angel Moroni to a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith? <laughs> But it so flagrantly departs from what the Bible says that it couldn't possibly be the gospel. In fact, Paul said, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That literally means let him be damned. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That's Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Yet another religion, and this thing can just go on and on. Another religion claims that a woman by the name of Ellen G. White saw in heaven the Sabbath commandment inscribed in gold. To this day, that particular group contradicts the Bible by, by uh, preaching Sabbath observance for Christians today. But Paul said, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Colossians 2 verse 16. Surely none would doubt the sincerity of the man who had shown such boldness and pure dedication as we have seen in our story tonight. I really admire a fellow that will just stand right up and spit it out and just be what he ought to be. But how foolish he was later to believe that garbage that that old prophet told him. Notwithstanding his sincerity, he still died because he was in disobedience. And what a lesson that is for us. Well, I could go on and on, but I want to tell you a quick story to show you a, 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 a present day application of this. When I was first beginning to preach, and I was still a young preacher, I went up into a certain state, not this state, but I went into a certain state and held a gospel meeting. And I stayed with a young couple, younger than me, who had two beautiful little boys, just little guys, sweet little boys. And this was one of the nicest families I had ever known. We just had the greatest time that week. We, we, we went to church. We studied the Bible. We talked about the Bible. We laughed. We joked. It was wonderful. Two years later, I went back and held another meeting at the same place. And there was a subtle difference. At first, I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't stay with the, that family the next time. I stayed somewhere else. But I visited with them. 
And somehow it was just a little different. The wife was just not quite the same. I, I wasn't quite sure what it was. She came to every service, but she just wasn't quite the same. Two years after that, I went back and held a third meeting. And guess what? Now the wife was no longer going to church. She stayed at home. Her husband still went, was one of the main teachers at church, traveled around other places and helped other churches. But his wife stayed at home and she kept the little boys at home. By this time, they were growing larger. I went out to see her. I pled with her to come to church and make things right. It was absolutely like pouring water on a duck's back. Not interested was the answer that I got. And so this went on and I held several meetings in the interim. 30 years this woman was out of duty. And every time I would go and visit. She did get to where she would come and hear me preach a night or two. But her heart was as cold as it could be. And when she would come, the boys didn't come. It was just heartbreaking. A few years ago, I went back and held yet another meeting at that place. And I heard a rumor that she had softened and was thinking maybe about coming back to church. I immediately went to her the very first night of the meeting and I said, listen, this is your time. This is when you're going to come back to church. I, and, and I even said, I want you to sit right up here close to the front. You won't have far to go and I'll, I'll walk up there with you. As soon as we began the invitation song, here she came. The whole church was just emotional about it because they had for 30 years hoped that she would come back to church. Her husband was just almost down in the seat. Anyway, she made her confession. We had prayer. Everybody hugged each other. It was just wonderful, you know. And the next day, they called me and said, we'd like to meet with you. I said, okay. They said, meet us at a certain little cafe down in town. I said, I know where that is. What time? And they told me, and I said, I'll be there. We went down and had some light lunch, soup or something. And after we kind of just talked the weather down for about 10 minutes, she said, Don, you know, I've come back to the church and I'm so happy. I wish I had done it years ago, but I've got a problem. And I said, okay, what is it? And she said, what am I going to do about my boys? What could I say? By this time, the oldest one was married out of the church, not a member, his wife not a member, not interested in coming. The younger one wouldn't come to church. He's married now. Neither one come to church. None of their families are interested in church. You see the price she paid? I don't even remember what caused her to leave the church. It really doesn't matter. But whatever it was, it cost her her family. You know, you, you can't pat somebody on the back like that and say, hey, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. No, it's not okay. It's terrible. It's the worst news you can have. If you've ever had a, a son or a daughter out of the church for a while, you know what I'm talking about. 
And these children, I hope they do come to the, uh, to the Lord one of these days. But these children so far have shown absolutely no interest in doing that. And it, it, it is not encouraging at all. And she must live every day with having learned the lesson. What a terrible price I have paid for my foolishness. For letting my temper get the best of me. For getting my feelings hurt or whatever it may have been that caused her to leave the church. Lessons learned? Yeah, but lessons learned too late. And there just isn't anything that anybody can do for somebody like that. Isn't that sad? Well, I hope that this makes an impression on you tonight. Because it certainly was a sobering realization to me. And when she asked me that question that day, I just didn't know what to say. There really was nothing I could say that would be encouraging to her. Are you here tonight and not a child of God? You need to be. You don't know when the Lord is coming back. He may be back before this service is over. He may be back before the, the morning comes. In fact, there's just all kinds of things that could be. Do you realize, and this just blows my mind, but do you realize that the coffin that I'm going to be buried in may already have been built and waiting for me somewhere? You too? Now, that's kind of sobering, isn't it? What if you're not ready to go? That would be a lesson learned too late, wouldn't it? 